Welcome to a new episode of Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christophe van Houten and today I'm joined by Ian T. Benson, professor of law at the University of Notre Dame in Australia and legal consultant, legal philosopher and poet. Hello Ian and welcome. Hello Christoph. Thanks for being with us. Now Ian, your legal work and your thoughts on legal practices have touched on many aspects. However, I think that an important aspect, an aspect that has been a constant in your work and expertise, has to do with the rights of minorities, or better, with associational rights, particularly of religious groups. Basically, if I can summarize, your work is dedicated to legal pluralism. Now, if you allow me this direct and almost cynical question, how are we doing today, particularly in our COVID times, regarding this topic of pluralism? Yeah, that's a very important question, and one that I think we need to keep front and center as we think about uh, not just this current crisis, the medical uh, global crisis, but uh, how, how Western law and law generally is, is dealing with pluralism, um, because it's under considerable strain generally in the world. Um, it's a theory, of course, pluralism, that begins with an assertion about diversity and difference. It recognizes these things, diversity and difference, what some have called multiculturalism, um, the fact that we have coexistent cultures of different languages, different ethnicity, different religious faiths uh, or non-religious faiths. So it recognizes these things as facts, then tries to understand political ordering as maximizing these differences, not blending or bleaching them out. So uh, with pluralism, diversity is a fact. And it's also it's very important to point out that it's prior to equality. In other words, equality and non-discrimination need to be understood in relation to different contexts. Let me let me give an example here so this mm. isn't too, too abstract for you. Mm. Um, we don't allow in human rights regimes or in many bills of rights, discriminations on certain kinds of grounds, for example, age, disability, sex, religion, mm. for just to take, take those. And yet in context, we not only do, but we must allow discriminations on every one of these things. For example, children cannot drive cars or buy alcohol. That's an age, an age discrimination. But it's one we understand to be important. And children generally can't consent to medical treatments. So we allow age discrimination. Similarly, we don't allow blind people to drive cars or fly planes. So disability discrimination of various sorts is allowed. And sex, too, allows us to discriminate depending on context. So we allow certain women's projects to hire only women as counselors, or we allow certain job-related tests that have an unintended discriminatory effect. For example, making women less likely able to pass a test for lifting weights for, for fire departments, for example. These are all allowed. As for religion, here, too, we allow discrimination. So a Jewish synagogue may restrict the hiring 
of rabbis to men, one kind of Jewish tradition, or um, to Jews, uh, generally, depending on the kind of synagogue it is. Catholics may not permit women priests, and so on. These are examples of contextual restriction, and these are very important to freedom. Um, If we were to run roughshod over those, we would dissolve the associational differences that are really important to enable us to choose between various things. But your question was about COVID. Also. Yeah. (laughs) And here we need to note some some puzzles um, that relate to pluralism in an interesting way. For example, why have, I I live down here, as you said in the introduction at the moment, I live in Australia. I originally came from Canada and I lived in France for many years. But why has New Zealand and Australia opened up certain commercial kinds of operation under the COVID restrictions, but not others? Mm. So we have, for example, hardware stores can be open, chocolatiers, uh, coffee places, uh, and bottle shops for alcohol here. In South Africa, they've closed all the uh, um, alcohol establishments, but not in Australia. And yet, uh, churches aren't open. Mm. And today, in New Zealand, regulations uh, allow a strip club, for example, to be open with 100 people in attendance, but not a church with more than 10 people. Mm. So this is very strange. It, it, similarly, in Australia, supermarkets have been allowed to remain open because we need food, obviously. But the the people have been crowded in the aisles of these supermarkets in many instances. And yet there's been no allowance for churches to open, as I said, even if people allowed uh, uh, exercise appropriate distancing. Mm. Now, I think this this reflects a strange blind spot on the part of governments, a kind of rank ordering of what they see as important, Mm. in which the spiritual or non-material is deemed, I think, less significant than literally, in that example, I gave hammers and nails. And I think we need to ask why. Mm. Well, the same thing happened in Italy as well, which is kind of surprising with the Pope living in the center of Rome. And it was it was interesting to see how uh, some uh, cardinals or bishops, and also in Spain, how they blatantly refused and they opened their churches. And then on the other hand, it's quite interesting to see how the Pope actually follows the political rules established by Italy by then uh, asking or requiring his princes to follow the uh, local government politics. So you see how how, how even the church themselves, they, they, they aren't really uh, fully aware of, of, of what's happening here in a certain sense. I think that's, that's very interesting because of course, the, the theory is that we have in all these cultures either a cooperation of church and state or some kind of separation of church and state. But even where there's a separation jurisdictionally, we recognize usually some kind of cooperation. And it's amazing to me how the religions have gone along with the idea that they should be completely closed, even mm-hmm. when they could have argued that they should be allowed to be open with appropriate social distancing. They didn't mm. do that. Yeah. You know, that, that, that is quite interesting. And, and uh, I, now in, in Italy, they have planned to open 
at the churches next week and uh, so so let's see how it fills out also because th there's there's this other aspect obviously that one of the main things in the beginning that that uh, allowed the spread was uh, church services as well this was so in the states and this was also in europe and to a certain thing so so on the one hand one can understand that there is this uh, confinement or that there is this this uh, uh, how, how can you say it this this non-desire to put a lot of people into a closed area and on the other hand you can pray also outside of a church and you don't need to go to a church explicitly to be be together and to think or, or to to practice your faith but on the other hand like you said it's it's quite astonishing that they can open up flower shops and hardware shops and then don't allow 10 people to go and pray into a church which is often much more ventilated than these uh, small small gathering places so that's that's quite interesting indeed but yeah, well, the other the other thing you you mentioned a very interesting thing in your interview with uh, a few weeks ago with David Cayley, the Canadian broadcaster and writer, um, uh, quoting Illich, Ivan Illich, who was a friend of Cayley's. You mentioned, uh, or he mentioned, the priority given here to a kind of vitalism, or the idea that life is the most important thing. Mm. But but surely we need to at some point. The longer this lockdown or these restrictions go on. We need to start asking some much harder questions about quality of life and the importance of associations and make some more nuanced distinctions which we're not making about those groups that are vul genuinely vulnerable and those that the science and, and our common uh, sense tell us are not vulnerable, particularly mm -hmm. young people. Um, and many young people have been particularly hard hit by the closure of restaurants and so on because they worked in those restaurants, now they find themselves unemployed. Well, mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a ridiculous result, and one that wasn't necessary, but showed a lack of nuance on the part of the political response. <laughs> That's for sure. This lack of nuance was, was everywhere, not just in Australia, but in the whole world. But and it, still is, it still is, Christoph. It still yes. is myth. Oh yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. But if, if I can continue, you're not just a, a pluralist. Uh, you're also a firm believer in the idea of subsidiarity. Uh, could you maybe start by explaining what this uh, means, this political religious idea, what this means, and then maybe also immediately answer a, a second uh, harsh question. How are we doing on that today in this COVID times? Yeah, this is another really important question. Well, look, this term subsidiarity is uh, its very, very important to understand it. It's an old concept, but it's not one that's widely understood anymore outside of, well, particularly Roman Catholicism, where it uh, really was developed. Um, it's one of the three, uh, what are known as the key principles of, of Roman Catholic social thought. There are three principles. The first is um, the organizing principle, which is subsidiarity. Uh, the second is the moral principle, which is solidarity. No, which we understand from the famous Polish trade union movement of the same name. Mm. And, the and the third is the result of these two operating together, the organizing principle and the moral principle, results in the third, which is justice and the common good. What is subsidiarity? It's basically, it goes back to Aristotle, and the, uh, Aristotle writes about this in the politics, and it's picked up by Aquinas. And basically, it's, it's the idea that there is a smaller categories of community, the family, the person, and we start from the smallest outwards to the community, then the neighborhood, then the 
the, the sort of the village, and then we move up up the ranks and up the rungs to the uh, different forms of ordering. And the, the principle is this, that things should, as far as possible, be organized for the benefit of the local and the more the closer, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Mm. So some of the, the listeners may be familiar with a famous book by Schumacher many years ago called Small is Beautiful. And the idea there was that we should think of our communities and our lives together as radiating outwards from where we are in our neighborhood relationships. And the, the classical authors had this notion of civic French. Um, and this is very important to remember that uh, if we start off with this idea of subsidiarity, this organizing principle that things should be organized as much as possible at the level of their local competence, that the larger should not exist to usurp the function of the smaller, we would have a rather different set of relationships in many areas of contemporary politics and economics than we do when everything's dropped down on the local from the highest um, level of the state. Mm. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. It does. And it shows also that how, and this goes back to the first or the second podcast we had here with the state of exception, how exactly the state of exception is incompatible with this whole idea of subsidiarity. It just takes away all the possible uh, powers or even simple deciding possibilities in the local, uh, in the local commune. So it's all decided from top down and bottom-up is just uh, on, on a standstill. And most most yeah, governments yeah. still have to turn down this uh, state of exception, even though most levels of of, uh, of of lockdown have gone down, the state of exception surprisingly remains in force. Yeah, it's very interesting. Schmidt's insight there, I think, is extremely important today because he's he, of course, saw this as a... Ch- as a, an exercise of sovereign power, and and the sovereign commanded the the exception for Schmidt, and I think he's correct about that. But what needs to happen is a is a, div, a greater divestment of this organizing centrality of this centralism centralization mm-hmm. towards the periphery, as it were, towards the neighborhood, towards the local, for reasons of the connection of the person to the community and the more vibrant and and free exercise of local initiative and efficiency and indeed sustainability. Because ultimately it makes no sense for me to be able to go into my supermarket and buy asparagus in Australia that is as happened last year I saw was coming from Mexico. <laughs> Just, this is this kind of, um, you know, you don't have to be a, a brain surgeon to think that this is going to have a massive impact on the world when we're shipping vegetables all halfway around the world in jets, when we're talking about pollution and sustainability. So subsidiarity isn't just a, a principle of organizing that doesn't have ramifications for the um, environment. It has huge implications for the environment, mm-hmm. um, both, the, both the family, the community, the community of friends, friendships, the classical authors understood to be core to common culture. All of these things are either assisted or hampered by how we structure the political framework around us. Mm-hmm. One more topic. 
Ian, if, if I can continue to picking your brain, one more topic you have been interested in, and, and this more as a legal philosopher than as a legal pra practitioner, and, and I'm changing topics here a little bit. So this other interest of yours is the difference between values and virtues. In, in, yeah. a, previous, in a previous podcast, the one I had with uh, Frank Furedi, he concluded, and I was quite surprised by that, he concluded that he hoped for a return of traditional virtues. Now, we hardly ever speak about virtues anymore, uh, but we can't seem to shut up about values. Also, in, in our present pandemic, value language is everywhere. But whereas in precedence, this language was true, wasn't truly convincing, I think it's even less convincing today than ever before. It rings all too much, like David Cayley says, the measuring and the measuring, economical measuring uh, of, uh, of, of simply everything has to have a number. And if we do that, like Cayley said, we just have to stop. So how, how are your thoughts on this? Oh, yeah, I think I think your interview with Kaylee really brought this out very well. And uh, you may not know this, but David Kaylee um, wasn't just a friend of Ivan Illich, um, about whom he spoke in that interview you did earlier. But he wrote some very penetrating insights on a Canadian philosopher, George Grant, mm. who died in in 1988. Mm. Um, Grant himself wrote really powerfully on technology and theories of justice and thought a great deal in some of his elegant short books about how we think of justice under the power of technology. And one of the things Grant said relates to your question about values, and, and it's really wonderfully expressed. He said this uh, with about this highly subjectivized nature of values language. He said, values language is an obscuring language for morality used when the idea of purpose has been destroyed. Now, that sentence is so profound, I get my students to write it down and memorize it. Mm. And, and, and one of them even gave it to me on a coffee cup, um, <laughs> which I thought was really, really, really charming. It's still in my office. But I'll just repeat it again for those who were, who were astonished by it, as I was when I first heard it. Values language is an obscuring language for morality used when the idea of purpose has been destroyed. Now... I think what Grant's getting at there is the old idea, and he wrote about this elsewhere as well in his little book, Philosophy in the Mass Age, is that techniques, uh, which is based on the Greek word techne, which means arts or skill, these techniques, and by the way, that gives us our word for um, technology, techniques, technician, technical, all of these are based on this notion of skills or art. These must be seen in relation to their ends or purposes. Mm. So when Grant says values language is based on a, a framework in which purpose has been destroyed, he's saying that the ends or purposes, which the Greeks call telos, have become disconnected from the, the questions of skill or art. So if techne, the techniques, give us the question of how we do something, the question of why we do it is rooted in its end or purpose or its telos. Now, only by understanding the purpose of something, it's tell us, can you say whether something's fit for purpose? Now, that applies to everything, political theories, cars, medicines, disciplines themselves. And here's the key. For the last at least couple of centuries, education in every single discipline has become increasingly technical and less and less 
purposive. Mm. And, and what I think this means, Christoph, is that we cannot properly evaluate why we are doing things. So we focus on how we are doing them. Mm. And this accounts for the fetish for measurement. In the in the academy that I work in, the university settings, everything is measured more and more. There's more and more forms, more and more student evaluations, more and more external accreditation reviews, but less and less clarity about what we're doing in terms of education, what education is. Now, if you recall, just to take one example, politics. For Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, the student of politics must first understand the soul. Well, this is just a shocking insight for contemporary people because they, they don't have any understanding why understanding the soul of anyone would be relevant for politics. Mm. Yet for Aristotle, that was the critical first question. Mm. Now, take, take my discipline, law. We're becoming mere technicians of law and less and less able to discuss the telos or ends of law, which is justice. So the cardinal virtue, you, you mentioned uh, Professor Faridi discussing courage. Well, the, for Aristotle, later developed by, by Aquinas, there were four cardinal virtues called cardinal virtues from the Latin term cardas, meaning hinge, because everything hinged on these four. And they were justice, wisdom, moderation, and courage for Faridi. Well, if you don't have a relationship of ends or purpose for law, how can you speak about justice? Justice is simply then what some of the contemporary theorists have said it is. It's just power. But of course, might is right is never a good measure for justice, is it? We all know that. So for Grant, values is an obscuring language. So we think it is about moral goods that are shared. And yet we know that in the values universe, which comes from this idea of the marketplace, or this idea of, home, of human beings as homo economicus, just merely calculating materialistic things with no spiritual dimension, contrary to Aristotle and Aquinas and the entire tradition. So, in, But in this values universe, there are two axes that dominate. First, you have your values and I have mine. And second, don't push yours on me. Now, the first of these, you have yours and I have mine, individualizes. Your values are not my values. And the second one, don't push yours on me, relativizes. So whatever else values are, they're not necessarily or even meant to be shared in any real sense. Mm -hmm. And yet we, when we use them, note how we thought about them as moral goods. Mm -hmm. So go back to Grant again. Values is an obscuring language when the idea of purpose, that sharedness, has been destroyed. So... Whatever else values are, they are not necessarily meant to be shared in any real sense. And this is the disaster that's fallen upon modern education for the last century and a half, even within the very tradition that should be upholding the virtues, namely Roman Catholicism and Catholic education. Because my Catholic students coming out of Catholic schools are all speaking the language of values as well. Mm -hmm. they, don't know the, they don't know the virtues anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, there's deep waters here that we can't go into in, in this kind of broadcast, but um, there's there we can explain, if we have more time, how this came into Catholic education. We don't need to do that here, but what we need to understand is that this endless talk about values is not discussing virtues. It's a term from the marketplace. It is about calculating humans, not moral persons. 
So we end up having individuals, not persons, values, not virtues, and vague generalities cut off from context. So we speak, as I, as I said earlier, about equality and inclusivity, which terms are not moral at all, but as Orwell would have called them in his 1946 essay, Politics in the English Language, just mere wind or meaningless words. <laughs> now, however, I wish it was just English that has this shift from virtues to values, but it isn't. No. If we go through all, you speak so many languages, Christophe, but um, I only have the two, French and English. But in any European language, and I've, I've traced this through Czech, um, Slovak, through Polish, French, German, Italian, all of these language, languages, somewhere in the mid-19th century, about the time that secularism was coined by George Jacob Holyoke, the English writer in 1851, when he coined secularism, uh, the term value suddenly starts to appear and dominate that tradition of virtues, which had been the common currency of Western languages. And mm -hmm. in each language, this term from the marketplace, uh, values starts to predominate. Mm -hmm. um, so the cardinal virtues, justice, wisdom, moderation, and courage, and then, as we always understood in the um, Christian tradition, which were perfected by the theological virtues of faithful love, these are simply replaced by the vacuous and confusing term values. And that's part of the crisis, I think, of contemporary politics, law and medicine, and education itself. And it's, that's why you mentioned its prevalence in these COVID discussions, because we're like a, a little puppy chasing its tail round and round, faster mm -hmm. and faster, but with no really real coherence to our actions. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fun that you mentioned Orwell, because there's a, a quote that I just noticed the other day, and, and I think that was quite cute in a certain sense. It said, let's make Orwell fiction again. So that, that might <laughs> might be a good... You know, good. it's funny because he wrote one of the, probably the two best-known dystopias of the 20th century, the other being, I think for most people, Huxley's Brave New World. Mm -hmm. and, and Huxley had a profound insight in a little book he wrote called Ends and Means he talks about the fact that you can have good metaphysics and bad metaphysics, but you can't have no metaphysics. <laughs> and I, I think what we've, what we've got now is an edu our education systems, which think they can, can maintain moral notions such as dignity of the person, cut off from any metaphysical grounding. And I don't think that's going to ever work. And I think mm. we're, seeing the, we're seeing the effects of that around mm. Now, in conclusion, and to change topic radically here, I've been following you a little bit online lately, and, and I've come to uh, notice that you have a passion for something that most people, I think, will find very, very intriguing, and that's conspiracy theories. Now, I, I know you have some serious doubts about the official narrative, and you're not alone here, uh, the official narrative that is professed around the world about this COVID thing, not that anybody denies it, being actually a virus, but the whole narrative about it is, is quite strange. At the other hand, they also know that you're not at home sitting alone with a tinfoil hat on your head. So could you say something about these conspiracies that is a bit more interesting and a bit more critical and uh, of, of, and of official narratives, but also about conspiracy theories as well? Sure, sure. Well, of course, you can't see me, so you don't know whether I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. <laughs> But you're, you're making a great leap of faith there. But in <laughs> fact, you happen to be right. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. But 
The term conspiracy theory itself first appears, uh, I think the earliest use is 1863, in a letter concerning the Civil War. And the definition of conspiracy means something secret and dishonest in intent, um, done by common action, hence con, you know, people breathing together is what it really means. But you can only have conspiracies if there's a truth, just as you can only have satire if there's a moral truth. In other words, to really laugh at a satire, you need to have, as Dame Helen Gardner said years ago, a, a coherent moral universe. Um, a theater of the absurd is different from a good satire. Similarly, conspiracy suggests that there's something real going on, something true out there, and the conspiracy is cutting against it, right? Now, mm -hmm. I, I think conspiracy suggests largely impliedly now that there's a real set of facts somewhere that we're not being told about. And I think we have cause to be concerned with respect to COVID because some of how it's being presented right from the beginning doesn't make any sense. I'll try and explain that quickly. Um, and in general, we need to be skeptical of main narratives where there are not questions being asked from the other side. So mm -hmm. regarding COVID, why are we not told from the beginning about cases when in many instances, all that, was, that that involved is a positive test, but not even hospitalization, much less death. Mm -hmm. So we've had this huge emphasis on cases going up and up and up. In most, in most instances, this was not even, um, this didn't lead to death. It didn't even lead to hospitalization. We were told that these massive civil shutdowns were justified because of something called flattening the curve. And so we stayed locked down for much longer than the two weeks we were told we were infectious. And yet in countries where there's serious overcrowding and poverty and therefore poorer health, such as India or South Africa, there are, and you can check this yourselves, very low death counts. Mm. Why? Many now think that the estimates we were given at the beginning were simply huge exaggerations and that the instructions by governments to record all deaths with, co with COVID as coming from COVID, it's a big distinction, relates mm -hmm. to causation, suggest a desire to show higher numbers. Why might this be? In whose interest are high numbers relating to this? Mm -hmm. We need answers to these serious questions, and no doubt there will be many conspiracy theories, given the involvement of global bodies and very rich people who seem to exercise huge power in relation to global health. Mm -hmm. Here, as everywhere, vigilance is related to liberty, and I'm worried at the serious lack of investigative journalism asking the kinds of questions I just mentioned. You know, in, in Australia, you can go on our official um, database for statistics and you can see that they absolutely direct people under cause of death. If somebody tests positive for COVID and they die, the death should be recorded as a COVID death. Well, mm. why? Why? Um, and some of the... In Belgium, they, like uh, I think you know this, but in Belgium, they have decided that every death in the elderly homes now without testing should be listed as a death of COVID. For that reason, Belgium uh, fatalities have been 40% in elderly homes, but they don't test these people anymore. Yeah, see, this is ludicrous. And mm. this, is, this could be um, um, charitably described as pimping the numbers. Yeah. And why? In, we have to ask the question, you know, as a lawyer looking at facts and causation, I would ask the question, um, in wh whose interest is it to exaggerate these numbers? Mm. Secondly, secondly, are we going to respect 
this, the rights of citizens to do things like refuse to have a tracing application on their phones mm. or to refuse at the end of the day to have um, uh, um, vaccinations. Mm. At the very least, we should have the right if we uh, can have a test for antibodies or a test to suggest we've, we have immunity, we should be able to say, I don't want a vaccination. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a basic right, particularly when there's evidence, as there seems to be, of controversial aspects to um, some of these vaccinations. One doesn't have to be black and white about vaccinations to be concerned about particular vaccinations. And I think citizens should be entitled to make up their own mind and take their own risks about some of these things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much, Ian, for these highly enlightening uh, uh, words that you've shared with us. Thank you for being with Picked Voices and thank you, everybody, for listening to one more episode. Thank you, Christoph. It's been a delight to talk with you as usual. <laughs> thank you for being with us and we hope to meet each other face-to-face -face as soon as possible. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.